Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales premier one-host, one-lazy-cat true crime podcast that each time around seeks out those tales that you may find unfamiliar, or you may not remember, sometimes even those that you will scarcely believe from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these said tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the toothless negative that is the true crime enthusiast, Peaksy is of course here too, and we're nothing without the integral bit, you lot, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show happen, otherwise it's just me talking shite to myself in my spare room, and the cat just looking at me daft thinking, what are you doing you prick? It's as fabulous as it always is, having you joining me in the mog here today, which I thank you for doing so, and I do hope that as you have, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, I should be having a break from the regular enthusiast for a couple of weeks following the tale I'm bringing you here today, because I want to have a bit of a recharge, and then I want to come back with this series multi-episode arc. Oh yes, that's coming. I can't promise it'll be another thriller, of course, but I'll do the best with what I have on such a nasty case. All be revealed. I will also be getting the next Patreon episode all squared away in that time as well, and on the subject of Patreon, Massive thanks go out to the returning and new supporters of The Enthusiast. Best fans ever, without doubt. With shout-outs this time around going out to Craig Laughland, Robert DiCastro, Jill McKenna, Amelia Hayden, Moira Curland, Denise O'Connor and Shannon Hedgedus, plus Sarah Hall, Eileen Warby, Adele Moll, Dale Nesbitt and Stephanie, who have each opted to annually support the show. What else can I say apart from that you're each fabulous? Thank you so much for such kind support. It means the world to me. And I hope that you've made a start on that full series of some 34 unreleased full-length bonus enthusiast episodes that being a supporter gets you. Plus, some stuff has gone out for some of you also. Now, if you're a glutton for punishment and you want some extra enthusiast to hear, perhaps even you want some stuff winging its way to you, Then to do so could only be simpler if it was on Love Island. It's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon, or is accessible through the link ever-present in the episode show notes. Quicker than a court summons flies through Katie Price's letterbox, and for only a couple of shekels, four groats and a ferret's egg, nothing more, the best part of bugger all, really. Like the kind lot I mentioned before, you also can be diving into extra enthusiast tales such as Mr. Whiskers, the Butcher of Cumdy, the strange tale behind Pierpoint's last drop, or the pure horror and sadness of an offering to the angels, to name just a few of them. With the latest Patreon tale, The Evil Eyes of Loxton, released just a few days ago, and with a new tale coming each month. And there are some right tales in there, I promise you. Back on the regular enthusiast, however, and to the tale I'm bringing to you this time around. Today, we all have a picture in our minds of what a terror attack is. Sadly, it's something we're all too familiar with, isn't it? But the events that make up the tale I'm about to relate to you, you may think, don't fall into that category. Personally, I do think it's an example of one. And it's certainly an event that, along with several other high-profile similar ones, including one two years later that remains as infamous today, and one that I've covered in a previous series of The Enthusiast, went some way to improving the security in places where the most treasured from our society are, 
and where they should always be safe. Schools. But what costly lessons these events were that led to devastation for so many, one such example of which I'll bring to you here. For our tale, we're off back to a Monday morning in March of 1994 and to the area of Acklam in the town of Middlesbrough in North Yorkshire to hear of the lasting effects that nine minutes of pure carnage was to have on so many, but one family in particular. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving children and involving injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for an episode I've entitled Wilson Jinx and the Carnage in Class E23. Oakwood Academy Acklam, located on Hall Drive in the Acklam area of Middlesbrough in North Yorkshire, is a comprehensive secondary school that opened in 2012 and today has academy status with a mixed intake of ages 11 to 16 and by 2018 had over a thousand pupils on its roll. Although it opened in its current form just 10 years ago, a secondary school had occupied the site for many years, as far back as the 1970s when it was known as Boynton Secondary School, until in 1991 this merged with Hustler Secondary to make Hall Garth School, which, along with King's Manor School, was part of the former incantation of Oakwood Academy. The Library at Oakwood, named so as Acklam, is named from the Old English meaning place at the oak clearings or place of oaks, is today named after a former pupil there. It's not one of the more famous names to have links to the Acklam area, for example, comedian Bob Mortimer, musician Chris Rear, or legendary football manager Brian Clough, but rather a 12-year-old pupil named Nikki Conroy. Though she was only to spend her first year of secondary education there and part of her second year, She's ensured never to be forgotten and is remembered fondly by many. The Academy Library and Memorial Garden that was erected there some years ago also a fitting tribute to her. A former friend of Nicky, who lived only about 100 yards from the three-bedroom semi-detached house in Acklam's Ridley Avenue that Nicky shared with her mother Diane, a supermarket assistant, her father Peter, an electrician, and her elder brother John, was asked later to describe her and recounted tales of her being the sort of girl who would always come bounding over with a big smile to say hello when she saw you, who never had a bad word to say about anybody, and who was always unfailingly polite, quoted as a friendlier, happier, more bubbly kid you could not find anywhere. Now, this has been a very common description I've found throughout research to describe Nikki, with many people offering fond memories of her, including her love of animals, dogs, cats, but in particular her pet rabbits, Whisper and Yorkie. Indeed, it was a love which had driven Nicky to want to become a vet in later life. Others describe a sporty girl who excelled at running and swimming and showed potential enough in each to go on to have a serious career in either, should she wished, emulating a hero, Linford Christie, or a musically inclined one who loved Simply Red, Whitney Houston, and had her father's behest, Billy Joel and who herself played trombone in the Hall Garth School Orchestra, often to be seen practising it by the greenhouse at the bottom of the back garden. 
but by far the most common description that tallies throughout the research I've done for the episode is that of a kind-hearted, caring girl who simply loved life. Perhaps best summed up by her father Peter, who later described his happy little girl who, whatever she did, she enjoyed herself. A former classmate of Nikki's, Amy Carsley, many years later recounted an example that demonstrated her nature, recalling, I didn't know Nikki very well, but I do remember one day that shows us what kind of a wonderful person she was. It was in our French lesson. I'd returned to school after two weeks' absence due to illness, but when I walked into the classroom, someone else was sitting where I normally sat. Most other seats were all taken up too, and I remember feeling really sad and embarrassed. That was until I heard a voice say, You can come and sit with us. Even though Nikki barely knew me, she asked me to join her. This is where Nikki's lovely, caring and loving nature really showed, as she made me feel like that had always been my seat. We used to have giggles, and she would always offer her help during the lesson. Now this kindness and compassion didn't just extend to those in her direct conscious, but far away also. An example of an exercise that Nikki had completed for a school religious education project, a prayer that she'd wrote, reads, Dear Lord, thank you for helping me, my family and friends in living a healthy life. Thank you for my food and drink. Please help the people in Bosnia and stop the fighting all over the world. Please forgive me for the bad things I've done. Thank you for being there for me and my family. I will always believe in you. Amen. Now aside from this, she was your normal young girl on the cusp of becoming a teenager. Juxtaposed against the scores of cuddly toys that lay on her bed at home were posters on her bedroom walls of Nikki's favourite band, Take That, and her favourite film star, the late Patrick Swayze. However much she enjoyed being with her friends though, and her then-boyfriend Lee Bowes, a pupil at the former King's Manor School in Acklum, who had met Nikki through a mutual friend, she was equally as happy curled up against her mum Diane on the sofa on a Friday night, watching television and eating popcorn. The Conroy family was, is, a close one, and though they were protective of Nikki, they equally gave the sensible girl some headway to develop street smarts, which she was just at the age of doing and was beginning to. So, from the girl I've described here, you won't be surprised that Nikki had the world at her feet. She was intelligent and studious, very well liked, very popular, and she made lasting friends easily. Later, she became known across the world as the girl with a smile that could light up a room. On the photograph of Nikki that's now up on the show's Instagram page, have a look and see if you agree. It struck me completely. By the end of March of 1994, Nikki had three things to especially look forward to. She would have become a teenager just a month later, on the 28th of April. The Conroy family were about to have Sky TV installed for the first time and the excited Nikki had already made a list of the shows that she'd planned to watch on there once it was. I remember my folks having Sky installed around the same time, and I had WWF Superstars of Wrestling, Unsolved Mysteries, and The Simpsons on the top of my list to watch. What did you guys have? The third was, along with classmates of hers, on the 29th of March, 
Nicky was about to attend a school trip to the city of Boulogne in northern France, and had only days before gone along with her father to collect her spending money for the trip. She'd gone on about these excitedly to her family all over the penultimate weekend of that march, and was still going on about them as on the morning of Monday the 28th of March 1994, she walked the distance from her home to Hallgarth School with her friends Carolyn Morris, who she knew through the school orchestra, and Claire Tremaine. That Monday, March the 28th, started like any other Monday for Nikki and the pupils of Hallgarth School. Nikki attended her form room, Class 8MR, and once her form tutor, Dr. Bob Howsom, had taken morning register, the class filed down to the school assembly hall at 8.45am to join with the other thousand pupils filed into the main school building. After assembly had finished, which we all used to hate, didn't we? What a pain in the arse it was. They split up, and pupils went off to attend their various classes, which for the 25 pupils making up class 8MR, the first lesson of that week was to be mathematics, specifically the delights that are algebra and trigonometry. As just before 9.05am, they climbed the two flights of stairs to classroom E23 on the second floor of Hallgarth Comprehensive, entered and sat down two to a desk. There wasn't a pupil that could imagine that within the next hour, just how much their lives would change, however. Late for school that morning was then 16-year-old Leanne Dolan, a fifth former who, 20 minutes before the end of the first lesson of that day, at 9.45am, had hurried through one of the side entrances to the school, there were five entrances in total, and who had held the door open as she went through for a scruffily dressed man coming up behind her. The 16-year-old said later she believed he was a decorator, recalling, he was wearing a black woolen hat and a dark jacket, and was so scruffy I thought he was a painter or something. The man, who was also wearing combat boots, black t-shirt and dark green army type combat trousers, also carried a hold all in his right hand, but Leanne thought nothing of this as she hurried off to her class, barely registering as the man headed towards the stairs leading to the upper floors of the school. What no one could see, for the corridors and stairwells were empty, teachers and pupils alike all in lessons, was the man stop on the stairs and unfurl the rolled up balaclava he'd been wearing down over his face, before reaching into the hold all and pulling out a Colt 45 pistol, then continuing up to the second floor. After bypassing several other classrooms, the man made his way to the door of classroom E23. What happened next is recounted by then 12-year-old pupil Sohul Malik, who at 9.47am that morning was sitting at the front of the class doing his schoolwork. A man came running in wearing a balaclava and green combat gear. He shouted, They've killed me, and now they've killed all of you. The man grabbed me up and put a gun at my forehead and said to the teacher, Mr Graham Nailist, Get out. I thought he was just going to stand there and shoot me in the head. The teacher tried to reason with him, but he couldn't. He was threatened with a gun and ordered out. Then the pupils were told to line up, so we all lined up against the wall, and he said, All the boys turn round, close your eyes, and kneel down. Everyone was screaming, 
but he shouted at us all to be quiet. There were some girls in the corner who wouldn't stop screaming though, and they were the ones he attacked. Maths teacher Graham Nailist, meanwhile, who was forced to retreat from the classroom at gunpoint, had immediately raised the alarm, rushing into the staff room and saying, there's a nutter upstairs with a gun and he's got the kids. Hallgarth head teacher Peter Smith immediately ran to the second floor classroom after the teacher had raised the alarm and recalled later, I looked through a glass pane in the door and saw the man lining the children up against the wall. I immediately started to evacuate the building. A few minutes later, I returned to the classroom. The quick thinking Peter Smith had immediately activated the fire alarms, which he set off throughout the school to evacuate all of the pupils. As the alarms activated, it spurred the intruder to scream, You're all dead! You are all dead! to the terrified pupils of class E23, who he had ordered to kneel, close their eyes and put their hands behind their backs. He then used two desks to makeshift barricade the door to the classroom, before once again screaming incoherently at the pupils, They've killed me, now they've killed you all. Continuing to wave the gun about, he pointed it in the direction of the door when he noticed two teachers peering through the glass, causing them to duck out of sight, but then unzipped the whole doll and replaced the gun inside it. But there was to be no respite here, for instead, he pulled out two of the three 12-inch kitchen knives that he also had inside it, and then launched into a horrific attack. Now, whilst most of the class were frozen in terrified silence, there were three of the year eights that out of sheer fear and hysterics just could not stop screaming. Totally understandable in the circumstances, it must have been absolutely terrifying, mustn't it? And as the three girls cowered in a corner of the classroom, it was these three that the man turned his attention to. Twelve-year-old Emma Winter was stabbed twice in the back, so hard that the blade of one of the knives broke off in the wound, whilst 13-year-old Michelle Reeve received 15 knife wounds. Both girls, although seriously injured, were to survive the attack, but the third girl, their friend, Nikki Conroy, was not so lucky. She was stabbed multiple times by the attacker, with several wounds penetrating her lungs, her liver and her heart. A later post-mortem was to determine that any single one of these would have been almost instantly fatal. A 12-year-old girl. Horror beyond belief, that, isn't it? Sohul Malik continued, We were still facing the wall and couldn't see what was happening, but it was horrible. We were all so terrified. He had a gun and a knife. There were no gunshots fired, but I could hear him attacking the girls. It must have been with a knife. These screams prompted Deputy Head Teacher Chris Bealby and his colleague Dave Eland, the two men who were either side of the classroom door, watching the man from the window in the door, to react. Chris Bealby recalled later. I could see through the glass door that the man had made the children line up along the wall with their faces to it, and he was walking up and down behind them, shouting at the kiddies. They were terrified. He had a revolver and two large kitchen knives, and at one point, he looked round and pointed the pistol at me, so we ducked out of sight and waited for a suitable time to make the move. Then I heard a scream, and when I looked through the door, all I could see were bloodstains on the white blouses. 
We knew then we had to act immediately before even worse things happened. Earlier, the man had brandished the pistol, but at that point it was in his bag, although he still had a knife in his hand. We charged in. As we rushed towards him, he reached across to his bag to get the pistol. Dave Eland grabbed his hand and pushed it away from the children, and we shouted at them to get out. After that, we wrestled him to the ground and got the pistol off him, throwing it to Graham Nailist, the teacher who'd been in the class when he first burst in. After that, we just kept sitting on him, keeping him pinned to the floor until the police arrived. He said a few things, but not very much, because I had my knee on his neck. As he was being held down, the man had gasped, Kill me, why don't you kill me? Give me the knife, let me finish it. Which Chris later explained that he considered this was the killer meaning he was wanting to commit suicide. He continued, By now, all of the children were out except one girl who was curled up in the corner. I tried to give her heart massage, but it was fairly obvious she died. The time was then 9.56am, but sadly, it was far too late for Nikki Conroy. She'd lost her life in the nine minutes from her killer entering the classroom to him being disarmed and restrained. As Dave Ayland held the man down, Police rapidly arrived and arrested the killer when he was under arrest and restrained. The whole doll he'd carried into the classroom with him was searched. Inside it was found an eclectic mix of items, including, as we've said, a third kitchen knife, a six-page handwritten document entitled Thoughts, Confessions, that was dated from January 1994, and a copy of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Parts of this Thoughts, Confessions document and we'll come on to that in more detail somewhat later, read, I imagine the deaths of young maidens slain in a room choked with desks. A small, yet viciously sharp hand axe also lay inside the holdall. Scary, eh? So, even though the gun he had brandished, however, was later found to be a replica, an axe and three large kitchen knives is still plenty of tools to commit pure carnage with, and who knows where he would have stopped and what he would have stopped at had the two men, both unarmed, not bravely intervened. At a later news conference, Police Superintendent Morris Jones praised both teachers for their brave and prompt action, saying, They held him at great personal risk to themselves until the police arrived. And brave though it was, both Chris Bealby and Dave Eland were to play down their heroics, with Chris explaining later. When it came to deciding to overpower him, we didn't have time to think about it. There was nothing special about what we did. Any teacher would have done it if they could have seen what we saw through the window. There was no time to think about whether we might be in danger. We realised we had to act quickly. I didn't have time to be frightened, and it was all over in moments. You never think it will happen to you. Meanwhile, whilst the two teachers were still restraining the killer, the school had been evacuated, with scores of panicked students rushing out onto Hall Drive. One resident, David Thompson, shook uncontrollably as he told later that day how six hysterical children had run towards him from the school, saying, I was walking my dog through a field behind the school when I saw six kids running for all they were worth. As they got closer, I could see from their faces they were absolutely terrified. They said that a maniac was in their classroom and had gone berserk. 
They told me their friends were dead. They were shaking and sobbing. At first, I didn't believe them. I simply can't believe this has happened. It's a good area and a good school. Other residents who live near the school, seeing the commotion with the arriving emergency services and traumatised children, came and stood outside their houses and echoed David's feelings, some of them in tears when they learned the horror of what had happened. But of course, this paled into comparison with the reaction of the Conroy family. Peter Conroy had only the previous Friday finished working for British Telecom, having accepted a redundancy package, and aside from the obvious thoughts of immediately getting another job, he was that Monday morning preoccupied with setting up the family's new Sky TV. He discussed it with an excited Nicky only that morning, being able to and enjoying having breakfast with his daughter for the first time in several years. He was bemused when the two uniformed police officers knocked on the door, and even later recalled asking them if whatever it was could wait, as he was in the middle of setting his Sky TV up. When they told him firmly, but not unkindly, that no, it really couldn't, Peter was then made to sit down in the living room and hear the kinder news that must truly be every parent's worst nightmare to hear. Try as you might, it's something I wouldn't want any of you to have to go through. For every time I write the same words here on the show, it's something I can't even begin to imagine how it must feel. In every time, be it entailed such as Sophie's, Annette's, Imran's, the list goes on. I find it heartbreaking. Peter then had the task of collecting his wife Diane from her job at the local spa supermarket where she worked and telling her the news. How on earth would you even begin to do so? And together, the devastated yet numb pair went immediately to break the news to their son John. John recalled years later, I was an apprentice at an engineering firm at the time and on that day I remember being sat in a room drawing a canoe. It came across the tannoy for John Conroy to go to reception. I thought I was being told off for something but as I walked down the corridor I could see my dad. The second I saw his face, I thought, oh no, something's not right. Then I opened the door to a side room and my mum was in there. What followed was a blur, said John. Nicky's shattered parents spent that Monday night lying on their living room floor, unable to sleep, while a family friend stayed upstairs to comfort John. The following morning, a dignified Peter Conroy yet barely able to conceal his emotion, which is unsurprising of course, for he'd been the one to go and identify his daughter in the hospital mortuary. Bravely told the gathered media outside the Conroy family home, My daughter Nikki was a happy young girl who enjoyed going to school. She was doing well, and I don't hold the school responsible for this tragic incident. How can any school be prepared for an incident such as this? I and my family now need some time. My wife and I are very distressed, so I would ask you to allow us some time to come to terms with our grief. Nicky's uncle, John Walker, who lived nearby, added, I can't believe you can send your child off to school in the morning, and by lunchtime she's dead. It is horrendous. How would you even begin to believe it? Horrendous indeed, and bearing in mind, this is before Dunblane 
or places such as Sandy Hook or Columbine really entered the public conscious. You should surely be safe in school, shouldn't you? Now, aside from Michelle Reeve and Emma Winter, the other 22 children in the class at the time escaped without physical injury, though a number were treated for shock. But of course, emotionally, how could you measure the trauma of that? Though of course Hall Garth School was closed that Tuesday, it did reopen on the Wednesday. Now though at first you may think this kind of insensitive, for that Wednesday signalled the end of term for the Easter holidays anyway, it was a proactive and sensitive decision made by headteacher Peter Smith, who explained to the independent newspaper as to why pupils would return just two days after the horror, saying, I feel it's quite important we get the school back together before the Easter holidays to work through some of the difficulties I'm sure we're going to have when we get back to work next term. By that Wednesday, Cleveland County Council had brought in 25 councillors and a 24-hour helpline service had been set up to help the traumatised classmates of Nicky, whilst family and friends of the Conroys rallied around to do whatever they could for them. The previous day, both of the other injured girls had been successfully treated for their wounds. Emma Winter, who'd been stabbed twice in the back, had been discharged from hospital after treatment, receiving eight stitches, and was then recovering at her home in Britain Drive. Michelle Reeve, meanwhile, was by then in a satisfactory condition in Middlesbrough General Hospital, after receiving a total of 15 knife wounds to her back, chest, her left arm and her right hand. She spent two and a half hours in surgery and was by that time out of danger, though she was to suffer delayed shock and for years afterwards was plagued by nightmares of a masked knifeman, as I'm sure others were also. Describing the ordeal, Michelle recalled, I saw him stab Nicola and I saw him stab Emma. The knife broke in half in Emma's back and one half of it fell to the floor. Then he started stabbing me. I couldn't feel any pain but I could feel the blood oozing out of me. When I looked down, I saw my blouse was not white anymore. It was completely red with my blood. Then someone shouted, Get out! I saw my chance and ran down three flights of stairs. At the bottom, the fresh air hit me and I just collapsed. Horror beyond belief. Now sadly, because Michelle had immediately passed out when she'd staggered into the arms of her teacher, and had been rushed to hospital for surgery, news of her close friend Nikki's death was kept from her until the following day, Tuesday, giving the poor girl more trauma. A sense of bewilderment followed at how such a thing could happen in a quiet suburb of Middlesbrough, and Hallgarth School became the focus of not just national attention, but even worldwide. Scores of floral tributes and cuddly toys built up outside the school, the collective mood of the locale perhaps best summed up by the example of a simple bunch of daisies left there that bore the message. Words cannot express this horror. In the coming days, weeks and months, the Conroy family were inundated with support from all corners of society and were to receive well over a thousand written tributes and well wishes that were all lovingly kept and stored away, ranging from a note of sympathy from Prince Charles who had visited Hallgarth School on the 30th of March, meeting staff and some pupils, and who'd left a floral wreath in tribute, 
which sat alongside the touching gesture of a mystery pensioner who had sent the family a solitary pound coin, each gesture having the equal meaning to the Conroy family. A minute's silence was also held for the murdered girl at the Middlesbrough game against Nottingham Forest on the 2nd of April. Nicky's funeral took place three days later, on Tuesday the 5th of April, at St Mary's Church in Acklam, with the church packed to the rafters. More than 500 people had crowded in, many arriving an hour before the service began. Her body was carried there as part of a cortege consisting of two hearses and three limousines for the family members, the first hearse brimming with floral tributes, including the wreath of yellow roses from Prince Charles, a floral tribute in the shape of a white teddy bear, and a sea of red carnations on a white chrysanthemum background from the residents of Middlesbrough's Easterside estate, where the man by then charged with a murder was from. We shall come on to him in a bit. Alongside hymns such as Give Me Oil in My Lamp, I Watched the Sunrise and Make Me a Channel of Your Peace sung at the service. Nicky's family had also requested that Holgarth pupil Claire Dix and former pupil Debbie Palmer sing the Andrew Lloyd Webber duet Pai Jesu, which they'd previously been moved to tears at at a school orchestra rendition of. Nicky's form tutor Bob Howsom then read two short passages, and headteacher Peter Smith read the lesson taken from St Luke's Gospel, before a poem written by a friend of Nicky's, entitled The Girl in the Sky, was read aloud to the congregation, in part reading, A precious life has just been lost by one hand that did not look. She was brought down as someone's daughter, so I guess we have to ask you why. Without knowing it, she saved each and every one of us. So why did Nicky die? The Reverend Simon Wright then paid tribute to the smiling girl, saying, Lots of people have said, Nicky always smiled. She had smiling eyes. She was for many a ray of sunshine. She enjoyed her life, and her enjoyment brought joy and delight to others, especially her family. Perhaps above all, no one will forget her smile. We'll take with us the fun and happiness she shared with us. Her smile and innocent face will never be clouded by cynicism, bitterness or disillusionment. Her life was cut tragically short, but in it she knew nothing but security and love, and there is nothing that can change that. Now, these are nice words and meant to express sympathy, I know that, but surely it must just equally magnify such an unimaginable loss. I would have thought too. So, the person responsible for such tragic events? On the morning of Tuesday the 29th of March, 29-year-old Stephen James Wilkinson of Cabersham Road in Middlesbrough appeared at Teesside Magistrates Court charged with the murder of Nicky Conroy and the attempted murders of Michelle Reeve and Emma Winter. There were 12 police officers in the courtroom as a shaven-headed Wilkinson, handcuffed to one of them and flanked by three prison officers, stared at the floor and spoke only twice during the short hearing, where he was further remanded in custody. Wilkinson was an unemployed loner who lived as equidistant to Holgarth School as Nicky did, and indeed was later found to have been a former pupil there, back in the 1970s when the school was Boynton Secondary School. Following his arrest, Wilkinson, who had no previous criminal convictions, 
but had come to police attention following an unsuccessful pair of suicide attempts some years before. Had told police during an interview that he could remember nothing of the attack, but claimed that the night before, he'd opened a bottle of whiskey, after which he had no memory, a complete void, until he was in classroom E23, with his hands behind his back, and being unable to breathe, only shortly before his arrest. Later in his interview, he furthered to officers that he'd fantasised about killing himself, stabbing himself in the heart, for years. Wilkinson claimed that he wanted to commit suicide in a public place, a park or a precinct in Middlesbrough, simply to show the people of the town his despair. These suicidal thoughts had ultimately descended into thoughts of killing other people, however, with Wilkinson explaining, When I was living in bedsits, I had suicide fantasies, and then I used to go out onto the streets deciding how to commit suicide. While I was doing this, it crossed my mind that I could so easily kill another person. I would just use the knife that I'd intended to use on myself. There was evidence that he'd begun to build up an arsenal with the potential of doing just that, as he admitted that aside from the knife he kept, Wilkinson also had a replica Colt 45 pistol underneath his wardrobe, as well as a well-honed, razor-sharp axe that he kept on top of it. Just some of the tools he'd brought with him to wreak carnage at Hallgarth School. The picture that was to emerge following Wilkinson being charged with these offences was of a loner who'd never worked a single day since leaving school in 1981, though he'd once applied for work at the local mortuary, and who had never had any kind of romantic relationship. He didn't drink heavily or smoke, and friendless, odd and antisocial, blanking neighbours on the rare occasions he was out and he saw them, instead locked himself away in his bedroom of the Caversham Road council home that he shared with his 56-year-old father Jim and his 26-year-old sister Anne-Marie. His parents had split years before. Here, he would pass his days listening to loud heavy metal music, playing on his computer, writing endlessly, which we shall come on to shortly, reading the works of German philosopher Friedrich Nash, who Wilkinson had an obsession with, and sketching and drawing comic art, although the art, which Wilkinson did have talent at, had a distinct and constant horror theme to it. There were always sketches about various serial killers, monsters, or satanic figures, an obsession which had manifested itself back in Wilkinson's school days. A former fellow pupil, Andrew Smelt, recalled, He was fascinated with real-life crime, and once wrote a dissertation on the Yorkshire Ripper. He was obsessed with murder and murderers, a lonely misfit who spent his time reading, writing, drawing and listening to heavy metal music. Now, as I said before, it emerged that Wilkinson was a former pupil at Hallgarth in its previous incantation, and not only had he been taught in classroom E23, the scene of his carnage, but he had also been taught by the teacher who he had ushered out at gunpoint, Graham Nalist who would have been a teacher there between the mid-1970s and 1981. However, he wasn't remembered by Graham at all. Others who do remember Wilkinson there describe him as a victim of bullying whilst he was, with a former classmate, Barry Charville, saying later, We all took the mickey out of him because he was a strange lad. At one time he was in a remedial class which was taught by Graham Nalist. He was a loner who had a terrible lisp 
Because he spoke funny, he was given a really hard time at school. He was what you call short-tongued, and he rolled his R's. He struggled to join in with the rest of us. He had a sense of humour at times, but his curly blonde hair and lisp were always going to make him a target. I went all the way through school with him, from the infants to leaving at 16, but he never had many friends. Stephen treated everything as a bit of a joke. He had one real friend, everyone else used to keep away from him. So, this largely friendless individual had carried these personality traits on after leaving school. Though Barry Charville describes him as being in a remedial class, welcome to the 12th century Barry, Wilkinson did actually have an IQ of 149, so this wouldn't make too much sense. His behaviour had certainly been disturbed in the years following him leaving school, and he had a history of arrests, though for his own safety really, after abortive suicide attempts of him trying to drown himself in the River Tees, and then later slashing his wrists. Although no dates of these can be ascertained, it is reported that these attempts had led to Wilkinson having several sessions with a psychiatrist, although there are no reports of him either ever being hospitalised or even being prescribed medication for any possible mental illness or depression that was diagnosed. Which you'd think kind of strange, really, because his actions of the morning of Monday the 28th of March 1994 scream those of a madman, don't they? And wait till I come on to his writings. It wasn't until December 1995, some 20 months after the day of carnage in class E23, that Wilkinson would come to trial, however, during which time, Nikki's family had had to deal with several anniversaries that were undoubtedly hard. Her missed 13th and 14th birthdays, a Christmas, which she'd especially loved, and of course, the first anniversary of her death. Three special assemblies were held at Holgarth School to mark the one-year anniversary, with pupils wearing ribbons to commemorate her on the lapels, and fundraising for a memorial fund that had been set up in her name to raise money for local good causes, a notion which Nicky would have loved, and which by December 1995 had raised in excess of £20,000. A bench bearing her name, the date of birth and the date of her death had also been unveiled at the school on the day. Now by that time also, improvements to school security had been made. A wall had been erected around the formerly open campus. The five entrances were now much more secured, and CCTV had been installed at the school. The classroom where Nicky had died had also now been transformed. Though it had remained closed for a period, it had since been remodelled, and was used as an IT technology room. Her parents and brother John, meanwhile, had spent the first anniversary at home quietly together, reflecting upon their still raw loss. Reminders of Nicky were still everywhere around the home, a large family portrait hung in the living room, as well as scores of photographs of her, of them as a family. Even her bedroom was kept the same, exactly as she'd left it that Monday morning. A year after Nicky died, her dad, Peter, expressed also in an interview how he felt to lose his child. Whatever happens now, he said, there will always be a but. We'll say we had a marvellous holiday, but Nicky wasn't there. If we bought a new car, we'd say, but Nicky never saw it. 
If we won the lottery, it would be nice, but it isn't important, because she isn't there. Everything has a but. Poor people. I couldn't even begin to put myself in their position. I know I've voiced this several times throughout the episode already, but I will again. How would something like that ever not be raw? Nikki's family do still to this very day mark the anniversary in the same way, together. With this turmoil, the Conroy family also had to await the trial of Stephen Wilkinson for a murder, which as I said before, didn't take place until December 1995. The reason for such a delay is unclear, though it's most likely on the basis of extensive psychiatric testing. In March 1994, he'd been remanded to HMP Durham as prisoner M1587, but by March of the following year, when he appeared at Crown Court for a pre-trial hearing, he had done so from Ashworth Secure Hospital in Merseyside, his behaviour on remand becoming so disturbed that it was felt he would be better managed in a psychiatric hospital. At this pre-trial hearing, held on Friday the 17th of March 1995, Wilkinson offered a plea of not guilty of murder or attempted murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. However, it was a plea that was not accepted by the prosecution or by the family of Nicky Conroy, and so his trial for a murder was set for December 1995. On Monday the 11th of December, Wilkinson's trial began, but now at Leeds Crown Court rather than at Middlesbrough. The reason for this change of venue is because the previous Friday, the 8th of December, one of the most senseless and heartbreaking crimes in British criminal history, again one which took place within the grounds of a school, had occurred in West London when Philip Lawrence, the 48-year-old headteacher of St George's Roman Catholic School in Maida Vale, had been stabbed to death at the school gates after intervening when he saw a pupil being attacked by a gang. It's a case that sent shockwaves through the country, and although we've never featured it here on The Enthusiast, to date, you never know what may crop up in the future. So, with violence in schools once again at the forefront of everyone's minds, and with the collective sadness that still hung over Middlesbrough and all the emotion, it was felt that a change of venue was necessary to ensure that Wilkinson received a fair trial. Prosecuting counsel David Robson QC addressed this in his opening to the jury, saying, The trial has been moved from Middlesbrough to Leeds because it is in everybody's interest to approach the case in a cool, calm and detached manner. In light of the dreadful events over the weekend, there is a danger of emotion taking over. That you must not do. As Nicky's family watched from the public gallery and Wilkinson, clad in a grey suit and dark tie, sat in the dock with his head bowed and his hands tightly clasped. Mr Robson then outlined to the court in detail the events of the 28th of March of the previous year, telling the jury, Emma Winters remembers that he approached that small group in the far corner where she was, saying, you are going to pay for what you've done to me. Then Emma Winter closed her eyes, she heard a scream, which she believed came from Nicky Conroy, and she felt several blows which she thought were punches to her body. In fact, they were stab wounds. Nicky Conroy, meanwhile, was attacked so violently that within minutes, she was dead. 
The court then heard evidence from the other pupils in class E23 that morning, although to spare them the ordeal of reliving it in court, for some were still receiving counselling some 20 months later, it was given in the form of their written statements, which were read out. Testimony was given next from pathologist Dr James Sumter, who had performed the post-mortem on Nikki, and who told the court of the severe injuries she'd received, the defensive wounds she had to her hands and arms, and the multiple stab wounds from a facing position to several of her vital organs, including her heart, lungs and liver, with any of these three proving rapidly fatal. Upstairs in the public gallery, Nikki's family broke down in tears upon hearing this. Mr Robson took the floor again following this, telling the court of Wilkinson's claims in his police interview, but how he had subsequently changed his story following interviews with psychiatrists whilst he was on remand. He had told one that he had flashbacks and had been watching himself doing it, having total recall of the event. However, that was not all, said Mr Robson to the court. The person that Wilkinson claims was actually doing it was not S.J. Wilkinson at all, but rather the dark side of his own nature, who is always described as Wilson Jinx. Wilson Jinx is, of course, an anagram of S.J. Wilkinson. So where did this come from? From the severely disturbed mind of Stephen Wilkinson, that's where. When he'd been arrested the previous year, I mentioned earlier that also in the holdall alongside his weapons were a copy of Macbeth and a six-page document dated January 1994 and entitled Thoughts Confessions, an eloquently written yet rambling document which Mr Robson then read aloud to the court and which in part reads This confession may read like that of a lunatic but I can assure you that I'm quite sane. In truth, I only want to convey to the world my absolute hatred of it. In doing so, I shall steal the lives of society's weakest members, those most vulnerable and those most treasured. I am serpent and dove, but if I could kill thousands by the power of thought, I would do. I would destroy the lives of the most vulnerable and trusting. The fabric of my existence is beginning to split open. Only psychopaths kill without compunction. I am an artist, philosopher and thinker. It frightens me, but I can't stop myself. Wilson Jinx wants to destroy me. If I let him gain ascendance, he will also slaughter the lambs. I imagine the deaths of young maidens slain in a room choked with desks. The future holds nothing but dread for me. Unimaginable frustration, social anxiety, despair. To live seems futile, to die absurd. I have been denied life, and like the selfish child that I am, I shall deny life. My ability to love was crushed by oppression, smothered, pummeled, defeated, and in confused metamorphosis, transformed itself into hate. I must redeem myself. No more can I purge my demons with verse. My power to resist is exhausted. Only the darkness remains. Pretty full on, eh? Wilkinson then refers to his mental state in the document, reflecting, I am not insane, either legally or medically. You must not allow pontificating psychiatrists to invalidate my statement. If I kill, it will be an expression of my alienation, in brackets, 
the rejection of me by the world and vice versa, and not one of grotesque individual psychopathology. What is happening to me? These last six months have been so black. I must act. Murder? So many abortive attempts, so many journeys to the edge of the abyss, and then reeling back in horror. Now Wilkinson then goes on to describe himself as introverted, insecure, embittered, unloved, very intelligent, a poet, a writer, as a sexual inadequate, an outsider, asocial, as having a Macbeth complex, and one defeated by life, before continuing. I fear death, though it will put an end to my misery, and I fear madness, the disintegration of my ego. If I abandon my structures, I will surely dissolve into psychosis. Better that I should die, that I be swallowed up by cold earth and sleep of the dead. Requiscat in pace. Amen. If I am a borderline psychotic, then translating my fantasy into objective reality, is this such a thing, will surely push me over the edge. That is why I must die. I appreciate the illegality of the prime objective, but I am powerless to resist. I cannot stop myself. I shall not discard this life without first satisfying these urges which have tempted me for ten years. The urge for power, domination, control and sexual release. My whole life has been a preparation for this day. On Thursday the 14th of December 1995, the jury at Leeds Crown Court was directed by presiding judge Mrs Justice Smith to return a formal verdict against Stephen Wilkinson of guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. After the court heard the testimony of no less than four forensic psychiatrists, each of whom had examined Wilkinson and who each agreed that he was severely mentally ill on the day of the attack. Earlier, the judge explained to the jurors why she had decided to direct them after a morning of submissions from the prosecution and defence counsels in their absence. After 45 minutes deliberation in her chambers, she decided to accept the submission from James Spencer QC, defending that there was no issue to be left to the jury to decide. She said, You heard four very highly qualified forensic psychiatrists and they all said that he was suffering from a severe abnormality. They all agree his was a severe mental illness which started in his late teens and has affected his life ever since. I've come to the conclusion that there really is no evidence on which I could give you a direction so that you could make a rational choice between two alternatives. Two of these had described Wilkinson's condition as paranoid schizophrenia, with the other two describing it as paranoid psychosis, a similar condition. Consultant Dr. Lawrence Naismith, who had had some 24 interviews with Wilkinson between Durham Prison and Ashworth, told the court that Wilkinson's illness meant that he saw the dark alter ego of Wilson Jinx as a real person, describing how in one interview, Wilkinson told me the dam had burst, it just came over him, total recall. Wilkinson said he could see Wilson Jinx go out of the house and told me that he felt compelled to go with him. They were originally heading for Ackland Cemetery where he would sometimes go to sit and think but 30 or 40 yards before they got to the main road, they changed direction and headed to the school. He said he didn't know what the reason was at the time. He told me he thought he was dreaming. 
Now, Wilson Jinks came out as though he was a real person in several of Wilkinson's writings. He'd even written an essay entitled, The Story of Wilson Jinks. In another story he'd written, entitled, Tears Shall Drown the Wind, the narrator, Wilson Jinks of course, says, If I had the strength, I would have taken my knife to these insolent wretches, and silenced these wretches forever. I would have marched into the classroom, and silenced their tongues forever. Very similar to the line in his Thoughts Confessions Manifesto, where he referred to visions of dead young girls in a room full of desks. Dr James Higgins, a psychiatrist called by the defence, claimed that Wilkinson had developed a god complex, and in an interview with him whilst Wilkinson was on remand in Ashworth, told the court how Wilkinson had touched upon a broad range of subjects in a short time, from expressing interest in necrophilia on one breath, to that he was writing a biography on the next. He also claimed that he planned suicide on the second anniversary of Nicky's murder, saying that he may as well do so, he'd been under-eating while at Ashworth anyway, because he feared there was a plot to poison him. Hmm, do you think he may seem a tad unwell here, shall we say? Diagnoses aside, each expert was adamant that Wilkinson was, at the time of the murder, and right now, suffering from a severe mental illness. They were each convinced that had he not been overpowered by Chris Bealby and Dave Eland, he would have killed all 25 children in that classroom that morning. Before sentencing Wilkinson, the judge made a point of explaining her decision to Nicky's parents, Peter and Diane, who were in the public gallery, telling them, You may find this hard to accept, and you do have my sympathy in that regard. There is not a person in this court who does not sympathise with your point of view. But I do hope you will accept that this decision has not been taken lightly, but with great care by the doctors, by counsel, and by me. Then addressing Wilkinson, the judge told him, It is clearly beyond doubt that you have been suffering from a severe mental illness, and I am satisfied that your mental illness is such, it is appropriate you should receive treatment in a secure hospital. Mrs Justice Smith then ordered that 31-year-old Stephen James Wilkinson should be sent to Ashworth Hospital, and that he should be kept there for a period without limit. Once he'd been taken down, she added that she would be recommending that Mr. Bealby and Mr. Eland be officially commended for their brave action in halting Wilkinson's rampage. Outside the court, the senior investigating officer, Detective Chief Inspector Brian Leonard, voiced that he agreed that had Wilkinson not been stopped, it would have been a massacre like nothing then seen in the UK saying, I believe he would have worked his way along the row. He'd already started at one end. I feel that was his intention. I don't know where he would have stopped. By the time he was, he'd already committed carnage enough though, hadn't he? And though Wilkinson was now effectively put away for the rest of his life, and after his actions and hearing his ramblings, there's no question that this was someone very mentally ill. It brought scant comfort for Nicky's family. Following the verdict, Peter Conroy said, We were asked if we would accept a manslaughter plea, but we wanted him to be judged by a jury and not doctors. I'm not angry, but disappointed. 
When the police first interviewed him, he said, I can convince any psychiatrist I was sane or insane. I'm not in favour of hanging, so the sentence he was given was the right one as far as we're concerned. But there's not a minute of the day that goes by that we still do not suffer, thinking about Nikki, but how she was and what she would have been like as she grew up. This is a sentence we have to live with for the rest of our lives. The pain will never go away, it just gets more numb. Diane Conroy, meanwhile, when asked what she would say if Wilkinson was in front of her, replied simply, just kneel. You can totally understand that sentiment, can't you? Now, Nicky's is a story that's been touched upon by the press several times over the years, with the Conroys always giving brave and dignified interviews for human touch stories, particularly around the anniversary milestones as the years pass since Nicky's death. By 2004, they still lived in the same house in Middlesbrough, and after a decade piecing their lives back together, the very real fear that Wilkinson may soon be released had long since begun to dawn upon them. Diane Conroy told the Sunday Sun newspaper on the eve of the 10th anniversary, I think we've realised that justice doesn't seem fair. If you're given a sentence, you should serve the sentence. Under the Mental Health Act, he can ask every year for a board to consider him for release, and, by law, he has to have one every three years. As far as we know, he's still in Ashworth. It's up to them whether he stays in, though. We're not involved in the process. He could be released and we wouldn't know about it. There have been lots of cases where that's actually happened. People have been released and have bumped into their victims' families in the street. That's not right. I don't know how people cope when they're let out. I don't know if I could cope, to be perfectly honest. Peter added, I would hope he wouldn't get out, but it's always there in your mind. We want him in there for good. I'd like to be involved in any decision, but we're not allowed to be part of the process. The worst thing is the not knowing. Asked what they'd do if they were ever to come face to face with Wilkinson, Peter said, It's too hard a question to dwell on. There are an awful lot of things you block out. I've often thought he wouldn't dare come back to Middlesbrough, but then, what choice would he have? It's the only place he's known. The only contact we would ever want to have with him would be if they rang us and said that he died. At the time of the trial, we wanted him to go to prison. It's the coldest, darkest place he could be. The biggest thing he left us with is the memory of that day. There will always be a part of the day when you think about it. It might just be for a few seconds, but every day it happens. And the pair told how they used the date itself now to celebrate Nicky's life. Diane said, We do the same thing every year. We don't go to work. We take flowers to the cemetery. Some years we've gone to the school. It's lovely when you see how many of Nicky's friends have gone back too, and there's such a lot of flowers at the cemetery. It's amazing how everyone's remembered. People come round to see us throughout the day. It's a very thoughtful day. It isn't that it gets any easier. It's just that you learn to live with it. You can't alter it. You just get on with it. But try as they may, there was no getting away from the murder of their beloved daughter and the effect it had upon them for even the tiniest of things could bring back a sad memory. Diane explained, I can't eat popcorn anymore. Every Friday night, I used to sit with Nicky and watch television with it. 
whilst Peter added, I have the same thing with Maltesers. She always used to buy me them for Christmas, and we had to guess what it was. It was daft. Her radio is still in the bathroom. We've redecorated three times, and it's got no batteries in it, but it always stays there. You have to push yourself. You lose your confidence, and you have to build it back up. When spoken to again in 2011 on what would have been Nikki's 30th birthday, Diane told how the family by then chose not to think of Nikki as a victim, but instead simply as their daughter, saying, If I think of her like that, it doesn't seem like she's my Nikki, so I just think of her as my daughter. She's not here, but she's still my daughter. I relive that day all the time, but if you think too much on the what ifs, you stop living. We're lucky though to have so many good memories of Nikki. She was such a fun loving girl. My work were really good, really supportive, I have to say that. And Peter and I wouldn't have made it through without the support of family and friends. And the internet page and all the messages really helped too. It's great to know Nikki hasn't been forgotten. She certainly hasn't been forgotten. As the years have passed, Nikki's former classmates have kept her memory fiercely alive. A Facebook tribute page, updated often, was set up so people could express memories of Nikki, offer messages of condolence, and pay tribute to their long-dead friend. On the 20th anniversary of her death, a charity fundraising night in her name and memory was held in Middlesbrough by her boyfriend at the time of her death, Lee Bowes, endorsed by Nikki's family who selected the Great North Air Ambulance and Zoe's Place Baby Hospice Charities as beneficiaries of the proceeds, alongside funds to assist in buying a vibrating bed for a local cystic fibrosis sufferer, Jessica Bedford. The evening was a huge success, with donations of auction prizes coming in from the likes of footballers Stuart Downing and Jonathan Woodgate, resulting in several thousand pounds being raised for the charities. Lee added, Keeping Nikki's memory alive is so important to us all. We've not forgotten her for a second. She was a really lovely person. Just such a kind, gentle, caring, beautiful girl with one of them smiles that could light up a room and just as beautiful inside as she was outside. I'm just glad a lot of us who knew her had the opportunity to be a part of her life. We all feel blessed we have the chance to share a part of Nikki in our lives. I'm sure she would have been happy with it. A well-loved, very well-missed girl indeed. Her grave in Teesside Cemetery is often adorned with flowers, not just from those left by her family, but from her friends too, who still desperately miss her. And she is commemorated with a memorial garden at Oakwood Academy, as well as having the library there named after her, the Nicky Conroy Library. Said Diane and Peter, when this proposal was unveiled, we are thrilled about it. For Peter and I, it means she won't be forgotten. And she loved books. It's so fitting. Nikki's brother John today is an engineer who lives on Australia's Gold Coast. And Peter and Diane get out and visit him and his family as often as they possibly can. For today, they're proud grandparents to two granddaughters that they love dearly. Yet however much time passes... And on the precious moments they get to spend with their grandchildren, these must be bittersweet. For however much they may not mean it to, surely it must cross both Peter and Diane's minds of the things that they have only not got to enjoy and be part of, but that Nicky never got to do as well. 
special monumental birthdays, perhaps marriage of her own, perhaps even motherhood. So sad, a sad, tragic waste of life. Another of the tragedies of the horror at Holgarth School is that sadly it was a portent of worse to come, for it was just two years later that Thomas Hamilton shot 16 children and their teacher dead in the Dunblane Massacre before killing himself. Dunblane, I'm sure, needing no introduction whatsoever. It had echoes of Nicky's murder in that an intruder had been able to make his way into the school building unchallenged, though this time the consequences were even more devastating. Then, in July of that year, in events I covered in an episode a few series back entitled Horror at the Teddy Bear's Picnic, nursery nurse Lisa Potts was amongst those badly injured as she shielded 18 infants from machete-wielding maniac Horrick Campbell in the grounds of St Luke's Church of England Primary School in Wolverhampton. The episode is still in the show's back catalogue if you fancy a listen, and a horrendous tale it is too. It was a combination of tragedies such as these that led to calls for improved security in UK schools. Today, swipe card access to and from premises, a stop and challenge policy, and fenced-in campuses are not uncommon in schools across the UK, and CCTV is almost standard in them. By 2012, it was estimated that there were more than 100,000 cameras in schools across England, Scotland and Wales. There is also, though this is by no means universal, a permanent security or police presence on site in many schools. Perhaps a sad reflection of the times we live in, but necessary to prevent the results of terrifying attacks such as these, and as we continue to see, on an alarming basis. And you have to ask, is enough being done? The appalling death of Nicky Conroy is a tale that I found so incredibly sad, aside from the purely horrific events I've recounted here, but perhaps made more so by the many testaments to her from so many people that I found through researching. I could have gone on for another episode, so many did I find, and all that echoed just how loved, how liked, and how well thought of she was, and how much she had to live for. I think back to my own days in school. Now I'm slightly older than Nicky would have been today, but I was in secondary school at the same time, and I never once felt any kind of fear about the unknown happening. Indeed, I was as carefree as Nicky undoubtedly was that Monday morning each time I went in. Because, after all, you're not supposed to think of schools in fear. They're a place where you go to grow as a person, not to be cut down, aren't they? The actions of Stephen Wilkinson and the whole dark side persona he'd created for himself, where he clearly vented the mental illness raging through him, as much as I found it terrifying, and indeed, I considered a possible example of an incel before the term was coined. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that theory. It again seems another person, like we heard with Matthew Turden in the previous episodes, who's an example of someone who'd fallen through the cracks in the system. If a person attempts suicide twice and are referred to a psychiatrist as a result, then they clearly have issues and surely they should be followed up so that person gets the help they clearly need. I also wonder if Wilkinson had been in the grip of mental illness for more than a decade as it was claimed at his trial, why did his family not notice or step in? For all of the intelligence that he had, 
though one psychiatrist called him well-read rather than intelligent, and it's clear from his writings and his IQ that he did possess some, severe mental illness such as this must have been noticed in the family home, and yet there's no record of Wilkinson ever having been treated before his horrific actions of that morning in March 1994. Did his family not care, or put it down to him just being an introvert, or did he mask his symptoms from them and all? retreating into a world in his bedroom that he could create and control, with his mental illness manifesting itself as a character he truly believed was real, Wilson Jinx, until his fictional world crossed over into the real one, and Nicky Conroy lost a life as a result. Stephen Wilkinson remains in a secure hospital to this day, now having spent almost three decades inside there, he is likely never to be released. As I said, I found so many tributes to Nicky from her former friends and classmates through researching that it would be impossible to include them all here, but each have the common theme of how her death has had a lasting effect upon them. For some, it spurred them on to enter the world of medicine and to try to help and understand people such as Stephen Wilkinson, whilst for others, the actions of Chris Bealby and Dave Eland have spurred them on to enter the world of teaching you never forget a good teacher after all, and one saving your life, I think you'd definitely bloody remember, wouldn't you? And to try and emulate them. Another of Nikki's former classmates is today a journalist from the Northern Echo newspaper, Joanna Morris, and out of all the tributes, I've chosen this one to bring the episode to a close with. I found it encapsulated so much. Speaking 20 years after Nikki's murder, Joanna said, Twenty years on, I still remember everything, from my usual walk to school to washing blood from my face just hours later. The sound of fire alarms still takes me back to that day, hearing their shrill ring as we were held hostage in classroom E23. Media reports from the time say we screamed, but I, and others, recall only an eerie silence as we bundled together at the back of the room. I trembled as his boots passed where I knelt, feeling childish for wishing my parents would rescue me. I'll never forget the sound his knife made as he attacked my defenceless classmates. Covered in blood, I fled the school, literally running for my life. These days, the figure of a terrorist is configured differently in the national consciousness, but that's what Wilkinson was and became known as throughout the intense media coverage that followed his attack. Wilkinson's attack happened in a time when such incidents were mercifully almost unheard of. Before Dunblane, before Columbine, before the world became sadly too familiar with terror in the classroom. His actions genuinely stunned the country, the murderous assault on innocent children causing shockwaves that brought with them widespread fear and helplessness. It was not merely the children at Hallgarth and their families who were left traumatised, but all capable of putting themselves in their shoes. If your children couldn't be safe at school, where could they be safe? But I have no wish to see the kind of trauma I've spent decades battling embedded in the national psyche. It is exhausting, horribly limiting, and it gives the monsters who perpetrate terror a power that they do not deserve. In the long term, that day shaped me in a multitude of ways, from my choice of career, recognising the need for responsible ethical journalism to where I sit in a pub because I like to know I can get out easily. It left me walking a tightrope between anxiety 
and the desire to live every moment as though it were my last. The darkest day of my life took away my childhood, but taught me that life is short, people matter, and that every moment, no matter how horrific, can eventually yield positivity. Powerful words indeed, I thought. I ask you to spare a thought going forth from this episode, not just for Nikki, but for her family also, and those who knew her, and those who still miss her. Whilst they age, she will forever remain a sadly missed young girl, always on that cusp of becoming a teenager. I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tragic story of Nikki Conroy and the tale I've brought you in the episode Wilson Jinx and the Carnage in Class E23, which you can do so in the thread that's up and running in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. I never mind talking wherever. Wow, if you get it squared away early enough and you are coming tonight as the episode drops, you can even talk to me about it in person at the show at Glasgow's Oran Moor that I'm performing in with Mike from Murder Mile and Adam from the UK True Crime Podcast and which promises to be a blast. Now as I said at the start I'm having a couple of weeks break from the regular enthusiast now as I said it's Patreon time coming up but I shall be back very soon and then it's ARC time oh yes. With that I shall wrap up here then and all that remains for me to say is that I've been I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, offering you heartfelt thanks for joining me and the sleeping negative doorstop today, and wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.